I have a friend named Joe, and uh, Joe's a good guy. Joe is a pastor, and Joe has just enough of a twang and just enough of hillbilly in him to be fun. And when I got the call here, my friend Joe started calling me preacher man, because <laughs> that's the way Joe talks. <laughs> And it's a call back to those days, maybe still those days in the South, where we call pastors preachers, or say, hey, preacher, and you got a little bit of a twang to it there. He did it to encourage me as I was taking on this new role. But as I was looking at our text today, I think that term of calling the pastor the preacher I think it limits our understanding of preaching. That, that what I do here, Sunday morning behind the pulpit, for approximately 35 to 40 minutes, or 30 to 35 minutes on communion Sunday, because I love you all, that that definitely is preaching. But I think something that is very clear in your Bible is that all of us, in our various ways, are called to be preachers of the gospel. And I think a problem is created when we limit preaching to Sunday morning behind the pulpit because I think we lose the call of God on our lives to all of us individually be proclaimers and sharers of the gospel. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, speaking to the church here, but you are a chosen race, you plural, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's pretty clear that all of us, and again, it's going to look differently for all of us, but all of us are called to preach the gospel. God has given each of us people in our lives and within our sphere of influence to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you in that task that you have. Because as we read this text, what we're going to see over and over and over again is the believers, specifically the apostles, but all believers, persevering in preaching the gospel. And we're even going to see some harsh circumstances. We're going to see some persecution in our story this morning. But even in the midst of that, even in every hardship and persecution, we're going to see a perseverance of sharing Jesus with unbelievers. And again, if you're following along in your outline, you're going to see our big idea there, pretty simple. All believers are called to persevere in boldly preaching the gospel. We're going to have a long text with a simple point that all of us are called to boldly share Jesus with the lost. So let's look at the first scene. We're going to see three scenes this morning. 
And the first scene is preaching in obedience to God. We're going to start in verse 17, and I'm going to read through verse 21. Follow along as I read. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So in this first scene, we see that the Jewish authorities are jealous of the early church. Maybe they're jealous of their popularity. Maybe they're jealous of the fact that they have been, uh, been given by God to do miracles, as we saw in the previous verses. For whatever reason, there is jealousy among the Jewish leaders towards the church. And what do they do with that jealousy? They throw them in jail. And so the apostles get thrown, and it says, in the public prison. And the idea there is that this incarceration was meant to send a message. This was a message for everyone to see, do not follow these people. Because if you follow these people, if you listen to these people, the same thing will happen to you, is, is, is the threat here. Now one, we need to recognize somewhat of a different world than in what we live in. And that people, because of their faith, are thrown into prison. And again, our response, one, is, is one of thankfulness that, that as I'm standing up here, I'm not worried that the cops are going to kick the door down and take me off to prison. In some countries, that's true. That may happen. And so, one, we're thankful that we don't live in a country where I'm worried about going to jail right now. I'm not. I paid all my tickets. We're good. Okay. But... <laughs> But at the same time, we need to recognize that it's not easy. Life is not easy, and and why are we surprised when it isn't? Why are we surprised when we get pushback from our neighbors and friends when we try to share Jesus with them? It happened back then, and it's going to happen today. And part of dealing with persecution in all its forms, whether it be prison or just being mocked and made fun of, Part of the battle is expecting it and not being surprised when it happens. But so they're thrown into prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So we have a miraculous jailbreak. A sign of of God's power supporting that the church is speaking the truth about him. And the angel says to the apostles, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, one thing we're going to see, I said there are three scenes and each one is about preaching. Each one also has a summary of the gospel. Each one has a summary of the gospel. In verse 20, has this, and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And, and it's, it, each summary will highlight a different aspect of the gospel. But the idea here, I think, resonates with places like John 6. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or Jesus' own words in the book of John, where it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so the angel says, I got you out of prison so you could preach about how people can have life through Jesus Christ. You can have the life that God intended for you to live today, and you can have the hope of eternal life forever. That life is found in Jesus Christ. And again, this is the message that we share that we share for for you to live the way that God intended you to live now and so that you can have the secure hope of eternal life in the future. You can have life through Jesus. And, And isn't that a message we want to share with our friends and family? Don't we want our friends and family and neighbors to have life and life eternal? Sometimes I think we need to understand the gospel to remember why we share it. Because it is the greatest news that life is found in Jesus Christ. And no other God can give you life. Your job can't give you life. Your money can't give you life. Life is found completely in Jesus Christ. And don't we want our friends and family to have life? So they're obedient to the command. Look at the end of look at verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So angel says, go, go teach, go teach about Jesus, and they do. <laughs> now, we've got to think about this, too, for a second. Back in chapter 4, the authorities said, and I quote verse 18, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they've been thrown in prison once, and now they're doing what they've already been told not to do by those in authority. But they do so out of obedience to God. They listen to the words of God through the angel and obey. And and part of what we are called to do is, is to simply obey that same command. In some ways, it's really simple. God tells us to tell other people about Jesus, and so we're called to be obedient and tell people about Jesus. Right? I mean, again, it's not a hard command to understand. The the hard times come in, in actually doing it. But the disciples give us a wonderful model of being obedient even in more harsh circumstances than we have today. But they're not just 
preaching out of obedience. They're also preaching out of the fear of God. Let's look at the second scene in verses 21 to 32. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this blood, man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So again, just to run through this story again, just to picture it fresh in your mind, they wake up the next morning, the high priest does, and he gathers the council, and they say, hey, let's go get those prisoners. They should be right where we left them in jail. And so they go to the jail, and they're not there. And the guy comes back and says, hey, the doors, the doors were still locked. The guards were still there. I just want you to picture these guards. They're standing around this empty jail cell. Uh, just still standing there, and they turn around, and oh, everyone's gone. But then they go back, and someone tells the council, hey, hey, remember those guys you had in prison? Uh, yeah, they're all outside, and they're all teaching about Jesus again. Yeah, about that. Um, and so, the captain... And the guards, the officers, go and bring them. But look at verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. What we're going to see in this part of the scene is who do you fear? And let me define what I mean by fear. Here's what I mean by fear. Here's what your Bible often means by the word fear. The idea is, who do you respect? Who do you show reverence to? Whose opinion ultimately do you care about? Whose opinion guides how you live? That's the way the Bible uses the word fear. And in verse 26, we see that the guards 
are run by a fear of people. They're run by public opinion. They make their decisions according to what they think other people will do. Do you see that in verse 26? Again, the captain brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They feared the people. But this creates a contrast with how the apostles act. Because again, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. And as we've talked about before, this is if you took all three of our branches of government and just smushed them all together into one group of people. So all the power, all the power that the Jewish people had was in this group of people. Okay, so again, again, think about having to go testify in front of the Supreme Court. Think of the gravity of that. If you got called to sit in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, that's pretty heavy, isn't it, to think about that. Okay, that's what's going on right now. But also, like, throw Congress in there and the presidents there, okay? But they say, look at verse 28. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. We told you not to do this. Again, these are the most powerful people in their country, and they're saying, we already told you not to do this. We told you to stop teaching about Jesus. We even threw you in jail and you still are talking about Jesus. But it's because the disciples are not driven like the guards by a fear of people. They are driven by a fear of the Lord. The awe and reverence that they have for God that their understanding of who God is and that they are not him. (laughs) Because look at their answer. Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Their respect and reverence and understanding of God is so great that they will disobey the most powerful people in their country. Because they fear God more than they fear the most powerful people. By the way, the most powerful people who handed Jesus over to the Romans to be killed. Can we remember that that's not too long ago? Can we remember that they still have that same power to hand the apostles over to the Romans to have them killed? But their view of God is so high that even people who have the power to hand them over to the Romans to be killed, they will obey God rather than those people. Because they are driven by who they believe God is. And God is so much bigger than any power, than any authority on earth. And it changes them because they really believe it. The the camp founder of the camp I used to work at says, if you really believe something, it'll change how you live. If you really believe that God is the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe, it'll change how you live. 
and it has changed how the disciples lived to where they can say, we must obey God rather than men. This leads into the summary of the gospel in this scene. Look at verse 30 and 31. So he's saying, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, okay, a common way in the Jewish mind to talk about God, the God who made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the first, the patriarchs of the Jewish nation, the God who has kept his promises, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And so what are they talking about? They're talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is through the crucifixion and the resurrection that Jesus is our Savior. Look at verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to do what? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has made a way for you to be saved from your sins. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can repent and believe the good news and be forgiven and be reconciled to the God who sent Jesus, the God of our fathers. And since this is true, look at verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. We have to be witnesses to these things, which is, again, how Acts started. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, whom God has given to those whom obey him. God has given his spirit to those who believe in Jesus. And so they can be bold in front of the most powerful people in their country because they have the Spirit. And guess what? We also know that we have the exact same Spirit. The disciples, the apostles, did not have, you know, Spirit version 2.0. They didn't have a better version they don't have, you know, like where you pay for the whole services where we have the free trial, right? That only lasts six months. No, we have the exact same spirit. So we are never alone. And God empowers us by his spirit. And so, because some of you might be saying, I could never do what they're doing here. They must, they must have so much more faith. They much, must have so much more spirit than me. But nothing could be further from the truth because we have the exact same spirit who guides us and leads us and empowers us. And that leads to the third scene. Because what we're going to see is preaching by the power of God. Follow along as I read in verse 33 and following. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
Can we just pause there for a second and recognize that this is actually a real threat? This is not some outburst of anger where they don't really mean it. No, these people actually had the ability to have these men killed. Okay, don't, don't let your familiarity with the text allow you to miss that. Okay, this is, a life, this is a life and death thing here. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So this guy named Gamaliel stands up and he says, take the prisoners out, I need to talk. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So he looks at the recent history, and he says, look, we've had people pretend to be the Messiah before, and when they died, their group just sort of went away. Verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. So it says, look, if Jesus is just pretending to be the Messiah, his followers will just sputter out. If Jesus was a fraud, it'll happen just like Thutis and Judas, and they'll just go away. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. But if God is really behind this, you cannot stop them. In fact, and again, he is speaking to people who viewed themselves as pious Jews. He's saying, if this is of God and you're against it, you're even going against God. If. So they took his advice And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So there's a lot in there. Let's take it back a little bit here that simply preaching about Jesus, go back to verse 33, enrages the council. Again, what are they saying about Jesus? That if you believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection on the cross, you will be saved and forgiven and have eternal life. What about that message is enraging? That Jesus is the hope of all people. 
And, and you know what that reminds me of is that there are some people who will simply be offended by the message that Jesus is the Savior. You know, I thought about this when I was in Southeast Asia in a Muslim-dominated country when I was going to go teach at a Bible school there. And the police had moved into the building next door. And so the leaders of the Bible school decided it was good to move the white guy because they didn't want to draw attention. (laughs) Because also, I'm almost tall in Indonesia. I mean, in... (laughs) in that part of the world, which is an amazing thing, and I get to live out my dreams. (laughs) But then I thought about it. Why, Why would the cops care about me teaching about the Bible? It's ridiculous. But they were right. They would have. And there are some who, when you share the love of God through Jesus Christ, they will irrationally be angry about that. Even though you are giving them the greatest news. And I don't want you to let that stop you sharing about Jesus. Because no matter how good your presentation is, no matter how holy your life is, some people will just be angry about Jesus. Now again, we do our best to be loving. We do our best to not offend anybody, but but we need to understand that the very message of Jesus Christ is offensive. Because here's what I worry. Sometimes we think that if a person doesn't believe, it's automatically something we did. And when we think that, it just causes us to shut our mouths. Now, sometimes it's true, and sometimes we need to stop being jerks. But just because someone doesn't believe doesn't mean the problem is with our hearts. Because again, there are some who will simply be offended that Jesus loved them enough to die for them, to offer them forgiveness and eternal life. Like they're angry about that. So don't let anger shut your mouth. Persevere even in the midst of anger. But the other thing that we can see here, the other thing I want you to give hope from is the historical persistence of the church. That these words were spoken approximately 2,000 years ago and the church is still here. That is one evidence of many that God is truly behind Jesus and Christianity. Because again, look look at those examples from history. The two men who pretended to be the Messiah and they died and their group just scattered. Now it's not the only evidence, but it is an evidence the historical persistence of the church gives us hope that we speak the truth. That there have been authorities and leaders who have tried to snuff out the church, who have tried to exterminate the church, and they could not. 
And that is a sign to us as believers that if God is for us, who can be against us? But also I want you to see that when we have God's presence with us in our mission, we can have joy regardless of the circumstances. Look at verse 40. And when they'd called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Again, harsher circumstances than we know today. Again, I don't expect after as I'm going home for lunch to to get pulled over by a cop and beaten for my sermon. I, I don't live there, and again, we are thankful that we don't. But notice that even in those harsh circumstances, look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Even after they're beaten, they can still be joyful. Why? Because God is with them. And they have eternal life. And that their sins have been forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because, look at verse 42. Look at their second response. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus as the Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let me, let, me, let me start there. Again, this is the third summary of the gospel in this uh, text here. Jesus as the Christ. Again, not Jesus' last name. Okay, just to clear that up. A lot of people think that. I'm just saying. Okay, what does it mean he's the Christ? It means that he is the promised Savior sent from God. A quick definition there. That he is the answer to all the promises in the Old Testament. That he is the one anointed by God to save God's people. And so he is the promised Savior. And because he is that, in the midst of of persecution, they can still preach in the temple out in public and preach from house to house. And again, that helps us understand what I said earlier about all of us are called to be preachers in one sense of the word. Because it's not just this. This is not the only place we preach the gospel. We both do it in public and to large groups like we do here, but we also do it, or should do it, house to house. The full or view of preaching is, is me preaching to you, to this big group here assembled, but also you having coffee and sharing Jesus with your neighbor is preaching the gospel, that house to house. And we have to have both, and we can't, we can't not do one. You can't have just this be the only preaching that this church does. Because that's not faithful to what God has called us to do. And when all of us are committed, even just to that house-to-house preaching, 
I'm convinced when, when you sit down with a friend or neighbor and you can actually have a conversation with them about Jesus, you can answer questions, you can answer objections, and since there's already that relationship there, they know it's coming from a place of love, that God will miraculously use that to reach people, to save the lost, to give life where there was death. And so all of us need to be preachers. And God will give you people. Again, I've said this time and time again. A prayer that God will always answer is, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. I'm convinced. And because God is with us, we can have joy in even the worst of circumstances. Because can we just admit that our circumstances are not as bad as the ones described here? I mean, is part of the problem that we've become so comfortable we've been lulled to sleep from sharing the gospel? I don't know but that all of us would be committed to sharing the gospel in the way that God has called us to with the people God has put in our lives. And we can persist in that because God is with us and God has given us his his spirit to empower us to do what he's commanded us to do. And the hard part is not just understanding that he's called us to do that, but the hard part is doing it. Let's all of us be preachers of the word. Let's all pray for boldness in our preaching so that we can share the gospel with our whole community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story. God, that we would understand your commands to share the gospel and we would be obedient to them that we would be driven by our belief in you and who you are, that you are the almighty God of the universe and that we would not be driven by the opinions of others and that we would know that you empower us with your presence and by your spirit to share the gospel in the worst of circumstances. God, forgive us for not sharing the gospel when we could. Give us boldness to share, and God, give us opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, and who, through faith, we can have forgiveness of our sins, eternal life, and reconciliation to the God who created us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.